The Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT recently issued a 10-year vision for interoperable secure health data exchange. I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Lucia Savage, Chief Privacy Officer of ONC. Lucia will discuss the most important privacy and security issues spotlighted in ONC's recently released 10-year roadmap. So, Lucia, privacy and security gets a lot of attention in the interoperability roadmap. Privacy and security of health data is among 10 top principles that are highlighted in the roadmap. So, what's the key message ONC is trying to send the healthcare sector, including healthcare providers, as well as the health IT firms out there, when it comes to ONC's long-term vision for interoperable and secure health information exchange? The key message we want to drive in the first three years of the roadmap is that from a federal legal perspective for ordinary medical information, we actually have a rules environment that supports the interoperable exchange of information that Congress desired to have come to manifest when it passed HITECH. So that's HIPAA. Everyone knows HIPAA. Somebody on my staff recently joked that, you know, HIPAA is a maligned law. It is maligned, it is misunderstood, and it's actually completely up to the task we need it to accomplish. So that's the primary message we'll be driving in the first three years of the roadmap is that we have a media-neutral privacy rule that protects privacy appropriately and helps physicians and hospitals and payers move the data where it needs to move for the core parts of the healthcare functioning, including treatment and including care management. So what about beyond the three years? Where does privacy and security become the highlight? So there's two other things we're proposing to tackle over the 10-year period. The second thing we're proposing to tackle is the issue of people opting in or opting out or making a basic choice to have their information electronically exchanged. So it's helpful to remember as background that the HIPAA rules themselves are the same for privacy if the data that is being moved is being moved by U.S. mail, by fax, by carrier pigeon, yes, I kid you not, carrier pigeon, and in an electronic form. The privacy rules are the same. The security rule is different for electronic data, but the privacy rule is the same. However, after HITECH was enacted, people uh, rightfully went back to their thinking spaces and sort of thought through problems and concerns that might have arisen in a digital health environment, like, is it going to go somewhere you didn't want it to go because it's going to go there unintentionally? Or what about the volume? Are there different issues we need to grapple with because of volume? And in that period from 2010 through 2012, ONC's Privacy and Security Tiger Team and other organizations as well really grappled with, should From a policy perspective as opposed to a statutory perspective, should there be different rules because the data was electronic? And that ended up playing out in these um, choices that are offered to patients sometimes through policies and sometimes through state laws to choose to have their data electronically exchanged or not, and the layperson's term for that is opting in and opting out. But the bottom line is federal law does not require that level of opting for electronic exchange. And we need to avoid the outcome of having people decline to have their data electronically exchanged. And then what's left? You still fax it. You can still mail it. You can still move it where it needs to move for patient care, but more slowly in a way that has to be rekeyed on the receiving end, potentially causing errors as they're keying mistakes. And there's a kind of a whole host of things that can happen as people make these choices. 
So we want to help people really understand the implications of those choices and that they were making policy choices that weren't necessarily required by federal law so that they can make sure that the choices they have made they're comfortable with and they facilitate their organizational goals of interoperability, their state goals of interoperability, or they can go, wow, I didn't realize that would be a consequence of this. Let me rethink what I'm doing. So that's the second thing. And the third thing that we're doing is we've reminded people in our draft roadmap and as well in our final that in the U.S. system, HIPAA is really the baseline law and that states can and do pass specialized privacy laws that are more privacy protective and may in fact relate to specific clinical conditions or specific populations within the overall population like minors. Those laws are really important because they were designed primarily to protect people from the adverse consequences of different kinds of health statuses. Many of us can remember when HIV AIDS was frightening and people were discriminated against because family members were HIV positive. We don't want health status discrimination to occur, but at the same time, we don't want laws that may have been enacted three or more decades ago to interfere with present goals for interoperable digital health information. So we'll be reengaging in some work we did a while ago. We started that work at ONC 2006 through 2008, so between nine and seven years ago. We're going to reengage in that work and um, help people understand the implications of those laws and maybe potentially paper requirements for permission slips from patients on interoperability. How do they impact health? How do they impact the health of an individual? How do they impact the health of a state's Medicaid population? How do they impact our readiness for recalling people to active military service when they're inactive and getting health care in the private sector where those laws apply? So we'll be having that conversation as well. We start each of those things. They all run in parallel. If you can imagine a three-rail train track. So HIPAA, basic choice, opting in, opting out, and any state legal issues. And we'll be working all those three things in tandem at the beginning because we know some of them are much harder to make headway on. So the state privacy environment is particularly complicated. What we can accomplish in the first three years is reminding people about that environment and reminding them of policy implications of that environment and letting states choose for themselves what they want to do about their own rules environment, if anything. And then states, if they choose to take action, that all takes a long time. So we gave ourselves kind of 10 years to really get to the end of this state conversation. As we know, a lot of health data breaches involve unencrypted data, and encryption is an addressable issue within HIPAA. When it comes to encryption, what does ONC hope to see in terms of progress, both short-term and long-term, when it comes to the use of encryption to better protect health data at rest and in transit? So actually, Marianne, our 2014 edition rule required that certified EHRs enable their customers, the physician practices, to encrypt data at rest. And so we have the technology in place to make that happen. Now what we need to do is grow the security behavior that goes with the technology we've made available through the CERT rule. So people need to take advantage of the ease with which they could cause encryption to occur. And it could be the encryption through the certified EHR technology, or it could be making sure that if you have PHI on your laptop and you're a physician and you take that laptop home, when you turn off the laptop, it automatically encrypts. That's a matter of buying software for your laptop. So we have to grow the security behavior that takes advantage of technologies that have existed for a long time and are actually used quite widely outside healthcare.
What about secure access to health data? Lots of healthcare entities still rely on usernames and passwords, but as interoperability of EHRs improve, what sorts of progress does ONC hope to see in terms of more robust authentication of users who access and share patient information? So I actually think there's a couple of different issues in there, if you don't mind me breaking it down a little bit. Um, the first issue would be that there's a, in security technology generally, there's a move away from passwords because they can so easily be lost, shared, or compromised to other forms of tokens or identifiers. Those of us who work in the government might have a card with a radio chip on it that is how we activate our computer. Some people have a special pass, a token for their logging in at their work that changes every time they log in and they have to use a code that comes to their cell phone. So there's all of these technologies out there. It could be biometric, like a thumbprint or an iris scan. There's all kinds of technologies that are far less compromisable than passwords. And I'm going to give you the acronym NSTIC, the National Standards for Trusted Identity in Cyberspace, is an initiative to move all of e-commerce away from passwords, healthcare included. So we want to be in that ballpark and we have to move towards it. So that's problem one. Problem two is we actually need to make sure that as we credential people through these non-password credentials to access systems, we're creating credential standards that fit the risk. So it's logical and if you think it through, it seems obvious that the risk that a system administrator poses when they log in and can access the data on hundreds of thousands of people from thousands of physician practices is much different than the risk that you or I might personally bring with us logging on to see our own data. And so we need to have authentication standards that meet the risk size. And we need to do that in particular in our value-based payment world where we expect physicians to engage patients. We need to have authentication standards that don't deter patients from actually engaging in the data that's being made available by their physician in an electronic portal. So that's part of that problem is matching the authentication requirements to the actual risk. And then third is we need to, back to the behavior, we need to have a system in which trading partners recognize and respect credentials that other trading partners have issued. So, you know, requester A has credentialed someone We need to get away from requester B requiring their own credentialing process. The Precision Medicine Initiative is also a big focus for HHS and the Obama administration. And as you know, the initiative is focused on developing treatments, diagnostics, and prevention strategies tailored to a patient's genetic and other sorts of characteristics. How do you see ONC's 10-year interoperability roadmap supporting the Precision Medicine Initiative, especially when it comes to protecting sensitive genomic data? Actually, almost everything fits very neatly into our 10-year plan. I'll just give you a couple of examples because otherwise I would go on and on and on. So a great example is the one we just talked about, about having the authentication meet the risk that comes with the amount of access the person seeking access has. In the Precision Medicine Initiative, it's absolutely anticipated that the Volunteer research partners, otherwise known as research subjects, but we really, we want this to be a partnership, are going to log on and check on the status of the research they've agreed to participate in. And those people will have to have credentials. But they're going to have access to different data than actual researchers themselves. And so their credentials will be different. That's one example. Secondly, within the research 
sphere of PMI itself, there will be researchers who have access to the genomic data in its raw form, as it were, and other people who have access to patterns and statistics and information that the research, the primary researchers develop, but not to the raw data themselves. So those two group of analyzers might, in fact, have different credentials as well. So that's the example applied to credentialing. The second thing I'd say is on the privacy side itself, an interesting part about the Precision Medicine Initiative is that unlike healthcare where data is collected about you because you're not feeling well, in research data is collected because you volunteer to have it collected. And so there will actually be an upfront dialogue with the volunteers about exactly how the data is going to be collected, used, stored, and secured during the course of the research project. And the third thing I'll say is, all the ideas that we hope to, over time, migrate from other commerce into healthcare that are for better security technology are already under discussion as whether they're appropriate for the security architecture for the PMI system. Now, Lucia, the Senate passed the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, which will now be reconciled with similar legislation that was passed by the House in April, then the bill would go on to President Obama to sign into law. Any idea yet what the potential impact of this legislation might have on the work of ONC or what role ONC might play in improving or helping to improve cyber threat and cyber information sharing within the healthcare sector? Marian, unfortunately, I can't comment on pending legislation, but what I can tell you is the commitments we've laid out in the roadmap absolutely are the foundational portions of my office's work plan for the next 15 months, and we'll be pursuing what we said we were. Finally, Lucia, looking ahead to 2016, what will ONC be focused on in terms of privacy and security-related efforts? Well, obviously, we have a lot of work that we have planned to do in the space of reminding people of what HIPAA actually provides. So look for some really cool stuff coming down the pikes for our blog. So that will be happening. Our state privacy project will kick off in 2016 with the National Governors Association. And you'll see our work on this space of choice, and it will come out in a lot of different areas. It will be about choice for electronic exchange, how to create an architecture for choices for research. We have a, a grant that we're working on for PCOR related to that. So that's all within um, OCPO's 2016 work plan. And how that relates to the overall work of ONC, obviously we are really focused on a couple of things. One is interoperability because that's what Congress asked us to focus on and because it's so fundamental to improving the way healthcare is delivered in this country. So that's one. And two, and related to that is how do we help people move away from keeping the information to themselves when they're capable of but maybe choosing not to share it. So that's sometimes called information blocking. There's a lot of different pieces about that um, described in our blocking report. And you know we've recently stood up with CMS, the email box where people can file complaints about blocking. So we'll be collecting that information and analyzing it. And when it comes to the information blocking, has HHS gotten a lot of complaints since you sort of floated that for people to chime in about that? I don't have personal uh, data on that. I can tell you even before we stood up that email box, people would give us offline anecdotes and comments all the time. Thanks, Lucia. I've been speaking to Lucia Savage of ONC. I'm Marianne Kolbasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.